Are plants worth more than people? Welcome to Answers News for Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. Did you say February? I did. It is February already. Holy cow. Well, welcome to Answers News. I am Brian Osborne. That's Patricia Engler, Dr. Jennifer Rivera. And we're looking at multiple articles uh, from a biblical commentary perspective in our culture today. We'll look at the popular medical journal, Are Animals More Important? Are Plants More Important Than People Are Equal in Value? And cover lots of other different stories. But let's jump into the first one. And that's going to be this. Lanson urges shift away from human-centered healthcare. All life is equal. And so basically what you have here in this article, it's the prestigious UK Lancet Medical Journal urging a revolutionary shift of perspective away from human-centered healthcare in favor of ecological equity. Ooh, that sounds really fancy and meaningful, right? Uh, attributing equal value to all life. So what does this mean for healthcare? I think we're talking about animals and plants and humans okay. having what's considered equal care. So we were concerned that, you know, like, let's say a guinea pig gets sick, right? Someone's right. pet, and they run to the emergency room. But there's Brian, who just broke his leg. That would be bad. What, what's going to happen? Well, the I'm taking that guinea pig out. I'm getting... <laughs> does, the, does the guinea pig or the, the dying plant, right, yeah. get priority over the human life? But that's kind of what they're saying here. It is, and it's crazy because I was actually just reading an ethics paper from, like, 1975 this called... This is what you do in your free time, right? <laughs> okay, I'm taking a bioethics <laughs> degree right now, so I don't normally do this. But it was called All Animals Are Equal. It was written by a famous bioethicist named Peter Singer, and he's actually arguing for the same thing that you see going on in The Lancet right now. So he was saying that, like anything that can feel pain was his standard should be given equal what he called moral consideration um, and that it's speciesism his word if you favor humans more but the problem is well a couple of them first of all his worldview secularism doesn't give you a basis for calling things like pain a problem for calling things like cruelty a problem the bible actually does so there's that but then also it doesn't give you a foundation for valuing different living things differently which you need to do when you're both in the same emergency room and there's a guinea pig and there's brian and whoa who gets to go in like does the firm go first (laughs) that's right there's a there's a problem so he still had to come up with some other ways like, well, if you're self-aware, if you can have hopes and dreams, if you can form meaningful relationships, then you should be valued a little more and given more right to life. But hang on, those are things that humans excel in. So he's being speciesist by his own definition. But the Bible gives us a basis for valuing humans more because we're made in God's image. That's right. And the Bible gives a distinguishing marker telling us that we as humans are to have dominion over this earth. That is, we are to steward it well. We're to care for the earth and care for the animals. And we are over them because God made us in his image. We're made to rule over them in a caring way. But still, we are distinct, made in his image. Distinct, thank goodness, from the guinea pigs or the ferns, right? And they do pick on a bit of biblical truth. uh, And that is, they recognize in this quote here, that the health of humans, domestic and wild animals, plants, and the wider environments, including ecosystems, are closely linked and interdependent. So they're noting the incredible symbiotic relationship amongst living things in this world that God has made. And it's true, there is this amazing symbiotic relationship. That makes sense in the biblical worldview by a creative, all-knowing God who made it all to work together for life to flourish. How in the world do you explain symbiotic relationships between plants and bugs and animals in the evolutionary worldview? How do you get a plant and a bug to evolve at the same time for the same purpose and function to the flourishing of the things around it? You win the lottery again, just like you did <laughs> yes. when life first again arose and when matter and first again. arose and when all the fine-tuning in the universe came about the way it's really convenient. Yeah, but it's kind of like we were saying earlier, if you don't have a biblical worldview and you don't have that foundation, that value in the Imago Dei or the, in the image of God, then you're just a number. 
you're just a mathematical percentage, and, right. and we shouldn't be surprised, you know, that we do see healthcare going in this direction uh, because you're just equal to anything else, and, and you're expendable just as anything else is, and, you know, they're valuing all this different life exactly the same. So it's not completely shocking. And we see the consequences of that ideology spilling over into different areas. You think about the issue of abortion. Euthanasia, defining the, the, defining the value of human life. How valuable is it? When does that value start? Well, in the secular worldview, those things all get redefined. In the biblical worldview, you have very different definitions for those things, and the outcomes for those are different in our society, right? The most tragic part is, though, it's saying you have to give up your animal diet. So no more steak or bacon, Brian. <laughs> you should have led with that. We could have finished this article a long time ago. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Moving on to the next article, Funky Worm Fossil Helps Explain the Mysterious Origins of Amphibians. The best title of the day, right? The Funky Worm. Sounds like a weird dance, but anyway. So what is it? It's, we're talking about these Sicilians, these unique kind of worm snake-like creatures that are amphibian. They're limbless, they're toothed, they're worm-like, and they're very evasive. So not very much is known about these creatures. And so they've been trying to figure out for a while how they evolved and how they're related in the connective chain of evolutionary thinking, right? In evolutionary history, that tree of life, if you will, from their perspective. How are they related to other amphibians, to frogs and salamanders? And basically for a long time in their minds, how this all fit together was very fragmented at best. So it's been a big question mark. And by the way, it's interesting. And the evolutionary storytelling, it's full of question marks no matter where you look. They don't really admit that until they say, oh, we think we found a filler for that question mark, right? Which is exactly what this is. This is what this is, right? (laughs) And so basically what's happened is they found a bunch of tiny jaw bones belonging to the Sicilians group, uh, representing a quote-unquote new species that plugs a huge gap in the fossil record. And so these jaw bones, they're astounding. They're a quarter of an inch, really tiny. And from these little jaw bones, we know evolution must be true now, right? What's shocking is, and I think my favorite part of the whole article was, they're looking at this fossil, they put it under the microscope, and they look at it and they say, we immediately knew it was Sicilian. So they recognized immediately what living species that we have today that it was related to because it was a similar structure. So... That, yeah. I know, that that's kind of shocking, right? Yeah. That what we see in the fossil record looks a lot like what we see today. Sounds like what the Bible might lead us to <laughs> expect to find in the real world. Yeah, and based on their dating methods, on their assumptions, they're assuming these fossils are over 200 million years old. So the Sicilian really didn't evolve for 200 million years, stayed pretty much the same. That sounds like stasis and not long periods of time, of course, in short time, as God's Word shows. But again, stasis is the rule of thumb, which is totally contradictory to evolutionary ideology. Right. And when they do talk about new features, um, quote, evolving, they use a lot of language that almost makes it sound like it was trying to evolve in a certain direction. For instance, they they talk about these uh, sensory tentacles probably having evolved to assist with burrowing noses and smelling. But evolution doesn't actually have foresight. It can't intentionally plan or try to get in a certain direction. You see that kind of language being used to try to explain what is clearly designed. And what this is just genetic diversity within this created kind. We see this where, you know, you may have one type of frog, but you have another frog who has different features. They're all still frogs. You know, they're all still amphibians, but God created them with this diversity to be able to live in different environments. The best part about this article is just the name they gave this new quote-unquote species. It literally comes from some two big Latin words, uh, funcus vermis. 
Gilamori, I don't know, something like that. It means funky worm. That's its literal name. So that's, kind of, that's the best part about the article is the title, Funky Worm. But I'll, here's a couple of key points, too, I think it's worth noting. They say this in the article. Given the known age of the fossil deposit and its recognizable teeth, we know it's the oldest Sicilian fossil ever found. So given the known age of the rock layer, where well, they're assuming the rock layers are millions of years old, and the worldview of what? In evolutionary thinking. So they assume in evolution, interpreting this rock layer and fossil in light of that worldview, get conclusions then that prove evolution in their minds. They're assuming their assumption, they're assuming their conclusion to reach their conclusion. And so it's circular at a foundational level, and that's what always happens with these particular types of things. And also, to me, I was sharing with you guys earlier backstage, what always kind of bugs me about this, multiple things, but one is, they asked a bunch of questions. They said, where along the line did Sicilians lose their limbs? Or from whom did frogs evolve theirs? Did their last common ancestor bear the same distinctive two-layer teeth? And here's the deal. Those are all the wrong questions because they're all rooted in the wrong assumptions. And what you have here is a waste, a waste of time, resources, manpower, smart people wasting their intellect on something that is not true on a secular fairy tale. Evolutionary thinking wastes so much time and resources. It is so sad to see people investing their lives in something that is utterly not true and actually unscientific when you rightly understand it. Right. And it does kind of remind you that even observable science, in this case looking at fossils, and then of course all the ideas about evolution that you interpret, that would be what we call historical science. But even the observable science has values that go into what kind of questions you ask, what kind of observations you're looking to find. So there's, yeah, evolution, evolutionary thinking really at every stage in the process. All right, that's enough on that. Let's uh, go on to the next one. Let's leave the funky worm and go on to... Something, this was just a, a bunch of garbage in this article. But anyway, it starts off, we can still see these five traces of ancestor species in all human bodies today. And so this whole article is going to be pushing an argument called homology. And, uh, and I would just encourage people who are listening or watching this or reading articles like this, if you are new to looking at these sorts of things, you may think, wow, that seems really impressive. Look at this brand new argument that supports evolution. Don't be impressed. It's a very old argument that's been debunked now for decades. So kind of keep that in mind. If you look at some of our articles on our website about this issue, they go back way back in the day dealing with this issue of homology. But basically, it starts off with giving a summary of, have you ever been around some of those relatives and you think, they're so weird. How can I be related to them? Right? The article starts with that. Maybe we all relate to that to some degree. And they say, well, in evolutionary terms, we all share ancestors if we go back far enough in time. This means many features in our body stretch back thousands or even millions of years in our great family tree of life. In biology, the term homology relates to the similarity of a structure based on descent from a shared common ancestor. And so basically, in evolutionary thinking, if there are similar features amongst living things, well, they will suggest that proves there's a recent common ancestor from which those living things diverged and have those shared common features. This is homology. Now, real quickly, and we'll dive into what you guys have to say about this. Are there similar features in living things? Yes. Absolutely. Would the biblical worldview predict that? Absolutely. Because you have a creator God using common design plans for common creatures living in in the same world. So shared features? Sure. Does it prove a common ancestor? No. It equally, if not more validly, proves a common designer. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And on that note, that's something that we like to encourage people when they come and hear our different critical thinking workshops as you start. When you're told all this evidence for evolution, look for the observational science. So what's actually being observed, in this case, some features like teeth or the uh, pattern of um, vertebrate hands often having five digits, five fingers. So we can see these similarities. So that's the observational science. The historical science is the assumption that they must have come from a common ancestor. So then you think, okay, what is a biblical way, an alternative way? of looking at the same facts, same observations through a biblical lens. In this case, like Brian was saying, we would expect that a good designer would apply the same good design to different features where it'll serve similar functions under similar mechanical constraints. So the article actually hinted at this where it said that five digits are the most practical for bearing weight on land. So if you have a design that's the most practical for bearing weight on land, you would expect a good engineer to apply that to all the different creatures that have to bear weight on land. And it actually makes more sense from this biblical worldview because it explains um, features that look similar in different species that are not considered closely related, say eyes and squids and humans look very similar, no pun intended, (laughs) but they are not considered... closely related. So a, an evolutionary worldview says that they had to evolve independently all these different times, but a biblical worldview just makes so much more sense, and it gives you a mechanism for getting those n- the new genetic information for all those new features as well. And what's really cool, too, is, is one of the examples they were using, they had five distinct areas they were looking at in this article. And one of them was the fenestries, which is this hole that's in the side of our skulls. And they say, we see this in mammals and all throughout living creation. But what they have actually found is the purpose of this is actually provide strength and scaffolding to the skull itself. And it also allows to alleviate some of the weight that would be there if it was solid bone. Well, this is the exact name. This is another example of where we see like biomimicry, where we see architects actually have what they call venestrations that they use in buildings. And those are windows and those are doors and those are openings that help provide things to flow. And that's exactly what we see in the skull. So it's just another example where we see God's perfect creation, his perfect design, the master architect being copied even in the world today. And that happens over and over and over again. It does. That's a really good point. And I'll point out something else, too. It's interesting. When they even define homology, it says, again, similarity of a structure based on descent from a shared ancestor. So they're assuming, in their definition of homology, they're assuming evolution. Then they use homology to then prove evolution. Again, it's utterly circular. They're assuming their premise and conclusion. So understand that's what's going on. And it's interesting, as you look at one part, they do say this, that, There are similar features, but sometimes in their worldview, those similar features come about by different mechanisms. So either you have similar features in living things because they shared a recent common ancestor, or you have something called convergent evolution, where you have things like uh, insects and birds. They both evolved wings, but not because they're closely related, but because of similar environmental pressures, they evolved similar features. So in evolutionary thinking, similar features either proves there was a recent common ancestor or there wasn't a recent common ancestor. Either way, it proves evolution. So is evolution falsifiable then? Because I thought science was supposed to be. Not at all, right? And that's the big point. And so they go through, they talk about the way humans walk, bipedalism, which is distinct to humanity. They talked about our broadened pelvis, uh, which is unique to humans for some very good reasons. And they said even our older human ancestors had this broadened pelvis. So humans have always been humans amazing. Or the hole in the head you mentioned. They mentioned 10 fingers and 10 toes. You mentioned that earlier. All these things make sense within the biblical worldview, but they twist them to try to fit the evolutionary narrative. 
Enough said, huh? Mm -hmm. All right, we'll move on. And by the way, before we move on on that, I do want to mention this. We have a great book talking about issues like this called Glass House, Shattering the Myth of Evolution. And so in this book, we cover some of the classic arguments for evolution. Chapter 10 is actually written by the late Dr. Tommy Mitchell, a really good friend of mine who's done with the issue of homology. It's a great chapter on that. There's so many other questions on what about vestigial structures, what about the eight men, what about the peppered moths and Darwin's finches, and, and literally the answers are not hard. You don't need a PhD to understand this. They're really good common sense answers, make sense within the biblical worldview, make sense with good science, and really confirms the Bible. So, so encourage you to check out the book, Glass House's Research. We, we do have a fantastic exhibit here at the Creation Museum as well, yeah. focused on homology yep. uh, by the late Dr. Menton. It's fa- I mean, it's just a wonderful teaching tool. We take our students by there a lot. So I highly encourage you, especially those of you that are here today, to go check that out. Yeah, it is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And he actually interacts with you with a laser Yes, he pointer. does. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. All right. Next article, we have Vice President Harris omits right to life when quoting Declaration of Independence on Roe's anniversary. And so she was giving a speech for the celebration of the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which, praise God, was overturned by the recent uh, Dobbs-Jackson decision. Now, of course, bear in mind, doesn't mean abortion is done in the U.S. It means it's now at the state level. 50 times over, so we still fight this issue very vehemently and passionately based on God's Word. But she was given a speech, and um, basically knowing her ideology and worldview that's very much pro-abortion, pro-baby murder, she's probably lamenting the fact that Roe has been overturned by this, and she's trying to say, hey, you, women have deserve these rights. They have the right to murder their baby in their womb. That's essentially what she's arguing for, right? And she said this, we collectively believe and know America is a promise. It is a promise of freedom and liberty, not just for some, but for all. Does that include all the murdered babies in their mother's womb, the 60 million in America over the past 50 years or so? Interesting. Moving on. We are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so she's quoting the Declaration of Independence, but she totally omitted this part. Here's the actual document. Here's what it says. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. By the way, self-evident is plainly obvious. We're all created equal, that all men are endowed by their Creator, capital C, God, with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So she most likely purposely left out, we're given these rights by our Creator, and the first one is life. She just mentions liberty and happiness, but to have liberty and pursue happiness, don't you have to be alive? Yes. So obviously it doesn't apply to the unborn. Uh, and we see these extreme measures being taken across the United States. Many, many states, even just in the last week, have legalized abortion up to the moment of birth, uh, which is, you said it's like that way, has been that way in Canada, in Canada correct? Yeah, yes. there's actually no law on abortion at all. You can legally abort for any time, right up to live birth, all the provinces and territories. So something to pray about for sure. It was interesting because they go into statistics here on Democrats, and they're actually talking about how pro-life Democrats and even the Democratic Party as a whole kind of feel about the abortion agenda. So if there's a little ounce of positivity in this article, I think it was here. We had to search hard to find it. We had to search hard, but (laughs) they said that 32% of Democrats um, believed abortion should be available to a woman at any time during her entire pregnancy, but that means 68% believed in some type of restriction. Now, we don't agree with their restrictions. Some of them would say up to six months, you know, up to, you know, 12 weeks, you know, whatever their personal viewpoint is on when life begins. But at least 68% recognize that allowing abortion up to the moment of birth comes with some serious 
issues with them. Sure, and just the fact that we're talking about human rights here, like where do human rights come from? Because right. remember, within an evolutionary view, you are worth as much as a plant or an earthworm. That's what the first article was trying to convince you of. Right. Much less if you're a, a, an embryo who doesn't have those traits Peter Singer was talking about, like the self-awareness and all that. So what we see in secular cultures, you don't have a foundation for morality, ultimately you don't have a foundation for human value. You don't have a foundation for truth if there's no creator. Everybody makes up their own truth and their own ideas about rights. That's called expressive, expressive individualism. So basically everybody works as their own God. Autonomy <laughs> in a word, right? Yeah, there you go. And what happens then is you get these conflicting um, claims to rights or conflicting entitlements. So the right to say convenience for a parent would trump the right to life for a child because what happens in these structures is the people who have a voice to express and claim their rights are the ones that end up being able to use them. So there's a really profound argument to be made um, that I've, I've seen some people argue really well that basically with secular ideas of human rights, you end up um, actually exploiting and excluding the most vulnerable humans from the rights. So secular rights exclude the people who need human rights the most. Ironic how that works out, and right? And you were saying, what well, statistics since the, what we would call the legalization of abortion, and you were oh, saying yeah. 1.5 billion estimates estimated. Estimates go from like the right. 70s, around 1 billion to 1.5 billion babies have been murdered around the world through abortion. And you get, just, I mean, stop and ponder how the perfect, pure, omniscient God of the universe looks at that and how he perceives that. And it's amazing that he hasn't poured out his wrath on this world uh, in a direct way uh, because of that. It really is. And there's a couple of things, too. You know, as we look at this article, or even go back to what you said about human rights. So, as you said, if there's no God to give rights, then rights come from where? Well, ultimately, they would come from the state. So, if the state can determine rights, then they can determine which rights to give, which ones to take away, and it's utterly arbitrary to suit those who are in power. And what you'll notice, when a culture abandons any sort of uh, top-down morality from a God or ultimate authority, and then the government becomes God in the place, and they determine right and wrong, typically they turn totalitarian because they want control for themselves to do what they want to do. And that's usually oppressive to people in pretty dramatic and awful ways. And so that's where secularism goes, rooted in that particular worldview. And so we've got to keep that in mind. But as I was reading through this, there's a statement here from the executive director of Progressive Anti-Abortion Uprising, and she's condemning what Harris said. And she said this, There are few people in Washington more complicit in the mass murder of the unborn than Vice President Harris. And that just phrase, mass murder, really stuck out to me because, dear friends, that's what abortion is. It's not just the murder of one baby. It's the mass murder of a whole group of people. You could even call it the serial killing of unborn babies in the wounds. Because when does life begin? When it starts at fertilization. Taking life at any point after fertilization is murder if you're purposely doing it. It's murder, biblically understood, and we should live and we should hopefully try to legislate in light of that reality as best we can or push those ideas. But just the wording there, the mass murder, that's what it is. And that's one reason we should really be willing to stand up against this and proclaim truth for hopefully the saving of all these lives to the glory of God and obedience and in alignment with his word. That's what we're passionate about, right? And we have Absolutely. a fabulous new resource oh, because there really wasn't one out there. So that Dr. Georgia Purdom and Stacia McKeever actually wrote one. This is just an excellent book for, I would say, not only children uh, and teens, but for adults as well uh, called Crafted by God. 
phenomenal. Just phenomenal. Yep. Beautifully really illustrated. Well Actually has wonderful hands-on activities for children as well to help them understand uh, that they are valued and image bearers of the Creator it's God. Cool, like poster mm -hmm. that pulls out, shows you right. all the stages. It's really With cool. images from our Fearfully Wonderfully Made exhibit. So, good. Yep. so I can't recommend this book enough. So Crafted by God, you can get on our website. Uh, so definitely go check that out. And I'll tell you, it'd be good not just for the kids, but for the adults who are reading it with their kids. Absolutely. Such a great resource. All right, moving on. Church of England will bless same-sex couples but won't marry them. Talk about a walking contradiction, all right? And so basically, the article tells us that uh, the Church of England has first apologized for its past treatment of the LGBTQ people on Friday, in relation to January 20th anyway. But it says it will con continue its practice of not allowing same-sex marriages in the church after having a six-year-long conversation in the church, but they will bless those unions. And so they're allowed to affirm and celebrate same-sex couples, uh, but they cannot actually perform the marriages. And so uh, you see this is really a slippery slope. It's kind of one step towards more compromise within, uh, within that quote-unquote church, leaving biblical orthodoxy. And it's funny because, you know, they talk about how many years they spent, right, talking about this and committees talking about this and how should we view this and how should we respond to the LGBTQ plus community. They spent, here it says, six years in consultations on how to handle same-sex marriages in the church. And we all agreed it didn't take six years. You could do it in less than five minutes if you just open the Word of God. You don't need to consult what man thinks about this. Right. I mean, Leviticus is clear, Romans is clear, 1 Corinthians is clear on exactly what God feels about homosexuality. Right, and you mentioned the, a quote at the end of the article when we were talking about this before. It stood out to me too. It says, this is just the latest itineration of the church's struggle to accommodate with a changed world. But we're, the point is we're not supposed to accommodate with a changing world when we have the unchanging word of God. And it reminded me, this whole situation reminded me of the verse that says, you cannot serve two masters. That is Jesus' right. teaching. So what there, for years we've seen in the church, we've tried to compromise with man's word um, to to make it to make God's word like fit better with what culture is saying, but when you're following Jesus, there's no justifiable room for compromise on what His word clearly teaches. So that's just as society continues drifting away from God's word, that's why it's so important for us as churches and families and individuals to make up our minds ahead of time that's to right. stand firm and follow Christ. As a really good sermon I heard once said, because the more we get used to making little compromises when the stakes are low the harder it's going to be to stand on God's word and not compromise when the stakes are high and they're only going to get higher. And this isn't sufficient. Like right. they're not going to stop here until they have a recognized marriage. That's right. Um, you know, in the church of England. So, and I'll um, use that yeah. article just to springboard straight to the next one because mm -hmm. they're very closely related. And that is very recently Pope Francis says homosexuality is a sin, but it is not a crime. And so in the article, it says that Pope Francis criticized laws that criminalize homosexuality as unjust, saying that God loves all his children just as they are, and called on Catholic bishops who support the laws to welcome the LGBTQ people into their church. And so there's so many things that we could spend probably hours on talking about this particular article. But uh, let's go through a couple of things here. Number one, he's saying that uh, the homosexuality is a sin. That's right, and that's biblical, but it shouldn't be criminalized. And there are implications from that, right? And we would definitely say when criminalized, it is definitely a crime to God. There's no question about that. Right. God is clear about homosexuality. He abhors homosexuality. It's mentioned not only in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. So it is very clearly a crime against God. And Patricia, you made a good point that it's also a crime against themselves. 
Well, right. there, there's yeah. the verse um, in, uh, yeah, I believe mm -hmm. it's 1 Corinthians, he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And that's like talking about any kind of sexual sin, but it is, it's a crime against the person too to sin sexually. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And one thing on that note actually that stood out to me about this as well is uh, the article paraphrased the Pope in saying, bishops in particular need to undergo a process of change to recognize the dignity of everyone, but hang on. Nobody's questioning human dignity here. That's not what it's about. You can't try to conflate that. That's, it, it's what we'd call straw man when you misrepresent someone's perspective to make it sound easy to knock down, seeing that Christians who believe the Bible somehow don't like human dignity. Like, wait a minute. The Bible is what gives a foundation for human value in the first place. So right. if you compromise the Bible, you're compromising on the foundation for human dignity. How do we care for human dignity other than what is best for humanity? How do you know what's best for humanity? What's outlined by the Creator in His Word. He defines sexuality and marriage. It's rightly understood and it's best for human flourishing when we practice it according to His rules, which is best for humanity. So the best thing to do out of the dignity for people is tell them the truth and love what's in line with God's word, right? That's right, and that's best for society too. We were chatting a little about that too. We see yep. all these attacks on the family. One of the reasons why is because the family unit is, first of all, the primary discipleship unit for teaching God's word to the next generation, but it's also what keeps society stable. That's right, and so if you think about from a biblical perspective, we need to seek to be sure we're defining marriage biblically as God does. It's his creation. He defines what it is, one man, one woman for life. He defines that. And then also we should defend it as the institution he has made it to be. Actually, the family is the building block of society. It is the foundation. It's the stabilizing unit of a society. If you disrupt that stabilizing unit, you'll cause the collapse or fracture of society, which you were talking about. So you see really the enemy pushing for this idea of, you know, easy divorce or uh, people just not getting married at all because he understands that once you obliterate that foundational unit, you'll see the collapse of family, thus the collapse of society, which is what the enemy wants is to and steal, that's exactly kill, what destroy. we see today it because is. they've been attacking the family for years. And so there actually is a great, another great resource we yep. have called the Gender and Marriage War uh, that talks about how there's this direct attack on the biblical marriage uh, as outlined in the Bible. <laughs> Just one point as one last thing, we'll get to the last article. The, the Pope said this. He says, we are all children of God. No. And God loves us as we are. No. And he loves us for the strength that each of us fights for our dignity. No. Number one, we are all children of God. No, we're not. We're all born in God's image, equal in value. But also we're born sinners in separation from our God because of that. You're a child of God when you repent and put your faith in Christ. That's when you're adopted into the family. Number two, God loves us as we are. Absolutely not. Right? That's why God became flesh. He paid the sin that we couldn't pay because he didn't leave us where we were in our broken sinfulness. He paid the debt. He defeated death, rose from the grave to achieve our great salvation, which we can never do all on our own. We can never do it. He did it for us not to leave us where we were, but to transform us into the image of Christ. And then he loves us for our strength, that each of us fights for in our dignity. I don't remember that what verse. What in the world? <laughs> he loves us because we're made in his image, Right. And he's shown that love through Christ. And so the Pope could not be more wrong on these issues than so many others, of course. But, but as we said, because he's not building his thinking fundamentally on the authoritative word of God. The tragic thing is because of his position and, and we would say respect within his community, so many people are going to read this and listen to his teachings That's and right. just be so misled uh, far away from what we know is the truth. That's it. Mm -hmm. All right. And then the last article, this is a bit lighter, a bit more fun. Uh, and that is humans and wild apes share common language. That's right. So this article says that uh, they can prove the evolution of language by looking at the gestures that apes use today and compared to gestures that apes have used in the past. And so what they did is they took a, they made a video 
Well, they had a bunch of volunteers try to translate ape gestures. Gestures. And so, and as they did this, they interpreted it, and they said, based on their results, it suggests that the last common ancestor we share with chimps used similar gestures, and that these may have been a starting point for our language. Yep, and well, unless you had... I was going to say, we were talking about <laughs> what a biased study this is, because they only had four options when they watched these gestures. Mm-hmm. So they Multiple choice questions. Multiple for choice, four answers to choose from, with a bit of context, right? A, bit, a little bit of maybe we say leading towards maybe what this gesture is. Right. So, and then they were only right 50% of the time. That's right. So. so it doesn't actually tell you if you read the article. It just says there is a statistically significant difference. But something important to realize about that terminology is in statistics, a significant difference just means better than absolute total guessing. It doesn't tell you how big <laughs> of a difference. And if you go to the original article, this is why it's important to check the original research, you find, and remember, total guessing, absolute random chance would give you a 25% chance of I mean, they were all volunteers. Every time. It's, it's volunteers. not like these, yeah, they weren't like, yep. you know, scientists right. who worked with primates regularly mm-hmm. or... Right, and actually the original study says that when people had a little bit of contextual information to go on, they got it right 57% of the time. When they had no extra information, they got it right 52% of the time. So you guys are both science teachers. If your students did a multiple choice question, uh, test and got 50% of the answers, would you assume that they knew the materials? No. Well, back in the day, it'd be an F. Yeah, it would not be a passing grade. Uh, I don't know. So, but yeah. You know. And I mean, honestly, a lot of people can probably interpret their dog's body language better than 50% of the time. Absolutely. So does that mean that you share a common evolutionary language with your dog? Like, that doesn't make sense in any other context. Right. It really does. And they say this, the study was part of an ongoing scientific mission to understand this language origin story by carefully studying communication uh, in our closest ape cousins. And again, please note, I've said it a couple of times, they're assuming evolution. Yes. Interpreting present-day observations and reaching conclusions that prove their assumptions Because animals do their communicate. Minds. They do. Right, they do communicate. So instead of investing time in, I mean, how do these primates really communicate with one another? They're just trying to take it back to evolutionary. Think about the differences in the communication. Okay, mm-hmm. gestures, which are helpful in some way. I talk with my hands. You guys probably noticed that already. about knocked my <laughs> cup of water off three times already. Um, but the way we speak, our words that we can write, that we can sing, our tone of voice, our body language, things we say and don't say, all these communicate at just so many different levels. Our communication compared to that of an ape is like a rock to a universe as far as complexity. It is light years different. Why? Because we're made in the image of the living God. And real science will confirm real observations if we just trust God's word again and again. All right, so we're going a little bit long. A couple of quick announcements before we wrap up for the day. Some yes. uh, cool things coming. Tell us about these. Yeah, so Explore Camp is open for registration. We have a new Explore Junior Camp this summer. It's our very first time offering a camp for students ages 5 to 10, and they oh, get yeah. to attend with their parents or so grandparent. Yeah. Uh, so we're really excited to have this offering. It's a three-day camp. Uh, we also have our five-day science camp, which is almost sold out, and we have our five-day forensic science camp, which is my favorite. So I'm a <laughs> you little might be biased, a little biased, right? As a forensic <laughs> scientist, but uh, we have a... In fact, Ken Ham's going to be one of our suspects this summer. Oh, uh, so if you want, he's your, guilty. Yeah, I was going to say he's probably <laughs> definitely guilty. But it's going to be a great forensic science yeah. camp. So you can uh, learn more on our website and register as well. And there's an early bird discount till April 1st on camp. Oh, there we go. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, also you know as well. Yes, our high school labs open for registration today, uh, and we're offering. 
not only four summer lab intensives, but we're offering, I think it's eight different labs uh, right. year round yep. uh, here at the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter. A lot of people don't realize we have a lab here on site as well as a state-of-the-art lab at the Ark. Uh, so we are excited uh, to have this program return and it's quite popular. Uh, so I encourage you if you're interested in coming to participate in our labs that you register very soon. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jennifer, for that. Yeah. And guys, so thanks so much for tuning in today. We will see you next time. God bless.